Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank you for giving us the gift of your Son and through him to bring your Spirit upon us and into us, to bring us into proper fellowship with you, to renew our hearts and our minds and our wills, to direct our paths always towards yourself. So fill us this day with that very same Spirit that our minds would be opened and our hearts enlivened to hear and receive and to be continually refreshed by the working of that very Spirit and to be refreshed by the grace and the love and compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. All this we ask through that very same one, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Rachel and I watched a movie over the last couple of days, and it's an old, it's a, not old, it's a Swedish film from about 2015, and the name of it was A Man Called Ove, or Uve, I guess is really how it would say, A Man Called Uve, and recently it's been remade in, as an American film and named A Man Called Otto. I don't know how that movie will compare to the original Swedish film, because the Swedish film was actually quite wonderful, even though it's all had to read subtitles the whole time to keep up because it's all in Swedish. And, well, I don't know Swedish, so I had to depend on English subtitles. But it's about an old man who is just the ultimate curmudgeon. He gets frustrated at everyone. He calls everyone idiots constantly. He has a way and an order to his life that he does not want interrupted by anyone. And in fact, he wants to impose that order on the chaos around him. But he's at the end of his life, he feels. And he wishes his life was over. He's just tired of living. His wife has died. He has no children. And he feels as though he is alone and he wants nothing more to do than to just simply leave this world. But yet, over the course of the events of the film, he begins to discover that as much as he wishes he could leave this life, that his life was absolutely over, there is a reason to care. There is a reason to help others. There is a reason to reach out and take care of other people around him. And to, in fact, not just take care of other people, but to receive their love back. And he does many things throughout this movie in an angry way. It's very, it's, it's funny to watch him because it's a dark comedy. And so he's just mean as he's doing good things for people. Someone needs a place to stay and he's just yelling at them and then he's like, well, fine, just, you can stay. He's just angry about stuff, but he always does the right thing at the end. He always answers his door. He always puts himself out to help others. And in his doing that, he begins to rediscover that compassion within. But it's there the whole time, but it's crusted over with his frustrations at the world. And as he finally kind of lets someone reach in and opens up to someone about the struggles in his own life, that hardship and that crust begins to fade away and he truly opens up and becomes the man he used to be at the beginning of the film, in his younger days. A man who loved life, a man who loved to be with other people, a man who loved to take care of people. And that is the work of Jesus in our lives this day. He works in us because of his compassion. 
He's not a curmudgeon about it, though, like Uve is. Jesus, from the very beginning, is pouring himself out for others for all the right reasons, with the right attitude, with the right kind of love and compassion. But that love and compassion that he pours out upon us and upon others overflows out of us toward others that we encounter. And so Jesus works in us by doing his work for us. And we see this begin to happen in our gospel passage this day, beginning in verse 35 of Matthew 9. Jesus is going throughout all of Judea, throughout not Judea so much as Galilee, I should say, throughout all the villages and cities in that area and preaching and teaching in the synagogues. He's still traveling around, going everywhere, making known the gospel of the kingdom. That is the work of Jesus in this time of his ministry. He is the traveling teacher. And he goes to each and every synagogue and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And ultimately that gospel is the good news of the Father's reign over you, over your heart. And in that reign to guide and direct you by bringing his salvation to you and placing you not alone, but into a community which will all culminate in a renewed cosmos. That's a lot packed into that phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. But that is what the kingdom is ultimately about. That is what this good news ultimately directs our eyes toward. Is that the Father is coming to enact His true reign over our hearts and minds. That reign that was destroyed and broken down when Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rejected His reign by choosing their own path, by choosing their own way to know good and evil. Instead of submitting and walking with the Lord their God and learning goodness. And through learning goodness, understanding evil, they chose evil in order to know evil. They chose to know evil and thus they threw off the Father's reign. But the Father is coming through Jesus to enact His reign. And in that, to direct our hearts, to direct our lives by placing His salvation in us. He places his salvation upon us, and in that salvation, we are not left alone. For that salvation is a uniting of our very souls, our very beings, to Christ himself. We are united to him by the gift of his spirit. Through baptism, we are connected to Jesus. His life is given to us. His spirit comes and dwells with us and brings salvation to us and places us in a community of others who have been united to Christ. That we are united to the church herself. And this becomes the nucleus of new creation in this world. That will be the first witnesses of a renewed cosmos. That all things are renewed by the work of Christ. And that is the direction of this kingdom that he is proclaiming. This kingdom he teaches about. This kingdom that he brings forth through himself. For he is ultimately that kingdom. Jesus is the one that the Father truly reigns over perfectly. Jesus is the one who is truly submitted to the Father in His work, who is truly directed by the Father in everything that He does. And He spreads that onto us. He captures us up into that reality of who He is and carries us forward. He brings us all about by His death and resurrection and ascension where all things will ultimately be placed under his very human feet. And in that proclaiming of the gospel, 
of that Father's reign over hearts and minds, He also heals every disease and every affliction. The new creation breaking into the old creation. Jesus Himself bringing that healing to the brokenness, to the afflictions, to the diseases that sin has brought into this world. It comes alongside the kingdom itself. It comes alongside that very gospel for it is part and parcel in the end. When every disease and every affliction will be wiped out in the end. But even more, as we know the whole of this story, Jesus is able to heal those diseases and those afflictions because he ultimately will endure the full wrath of the Father on our behalf. He will endure what sin deserves. He will suffer in a greater way than we can imagine, in a greater way than these diseases and these afflictions are creating suffering. And through his suffering, those diseases and those afflictions are ways and conduits of God's grace now coming into our lives and renewing our hearts and our minds and driving us always toward the Father, always toward the work of Christ, knowing that in the end, everything will be made right. Everything will be made clear. Everything will be made new. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven in a glorified body. The cross is not the end. Suffering is not the end. Healing is the end. Renewal is the end. Resurrection and new life is the end goal of this gospel of the kingdom. That all that is sinful within will be stripped away. All that is sinful on the outside will be stripped away. And death itself will be cast into hell. Death itself will be totally overcome in the final resurrection. And where does this great love, where does this great desire of Jesus' come from? That He would proclaim this gospel of renewal, this gospel of God's reign, and bring healing of every disease and affliction. We discover it there in verse 36 with compassion. When Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion for them. I know I've said this before because the word compassion has occurred in other readings, maybe even this reading three years ago. But I love this word compassion in the Greek. One of the few times I'll quote a direct Greek word to you, splagnizomai. Splagnizomai. It means to be moved in the inward parts, in your gut, in your intestines. Your bowels are moved. And when it is used of people, it is talking about them being moved with deep, deep affection, with deep pain because of the affliction of others. It is a moving of their inward parts toward those people. This deep, gut-felt pain because others are suffering. And that is the sense that Jesus has here. This compassion is flowing from the deepest part of himself. It's pity in that true old sense of the word. Not a mere feeling about someone's sorrow, that you feel sorry for someone. That's how we tend to think of pity. Like when someone is showing sorrow for our condition, we say, don't pity me. Don't have pity on me. Because we think of pity as only that sense of that person experiencing some sense of sorrow about <coughs> my condition. But really pity is not that mere feeling of sorrow but it's a deep sense of wanting to help and doing whatever you can to help bring that person out of affliction, though you don't know how to do it. 
Nonetheless, you give aid out of that sorrow. You give help. You come alongside no matter what, even though you don't know how to help this person in the end, in the long run. But nonetheless, you walk beside them because pity and compassion drive you to do that. In that sense of pity, I always think back to that conversation between Frodo and Bilbo. Where Bilbo says it's a pity that, or Frodo says it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. And Gandalf just looks at Frodo and says, pity? It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. In the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it, for good or evil, before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. The pity of Bilbo, that staying of his hand, to put to death a creature that truly deserved death, But his pity pulled back from pulled him back from that act of judgment. And as Gandalf says, Gollum may have some part to play. And Gandalf will go on to say that it is up to us to do with the time that is given to us, to decide what to do, whether right or wrong with the time that is given to us. That when we have experienced compassion, when we have experienced pity, we then have to choose. What am I going to do with that pity and compassion? Am I just going to hoard it up to myself? Am I just going to continue on the path that I have been on, breaking and destroying relationships and breaking and destroying others' lives and destroying my own life in the long run as people show me pity, as they show me compassion? Or am I going to turn away from my destructive path because someone had pity, because someone had compassion, and move toward a new path? But it's so hard to do that. And why is it hard to move in the midst of pity and compassion away from where we were? Away from that destructive path that we are on. And I think it's found in the words that Matthew uses here that the people were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. That is what is driving Jesus' compassion out of himself. He sees this helpless and harassed people all around him. That they are sheep without a shepherd. William Hendrickson translates those words for harassed and helpless as fatigued and forlorn. He also translates it as dejected and deserted. I love the pictures that these broader terms give, that these broader translations give as you think about that harassedness and that helplessness and also it being a fatigue and a forlornness, a dejectedness and a desertedness. That first word has that basic meaning of skinned, to skin an animal, which gives it a sense of just being worn out and exhausted when applied to a person's situation, that they can't do anything, they have been so beaten down. You might say they are worn down to a nub by the things that are being done to them. And that second word means to be thrown down to the ground. And so for them to be helpless, for them to be forlorn, for them to be deserted, is for them to be in the state of being on the ground in a helpless state, to have no ability to get up. 
And if you flip a sheep up on his back, he's stuck there until you kind of help him get back to his feet. That is the state that these people are in. They are harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd that just do whatever comes to mind. There is no one to guide them. And so they are lost in themselves. Sheep have to have a shepherd. They're flocking animals. They instinctually come together and they follow one another around. That's what they want to do. They want to be in a herd. They want to be in a flock. And that instinct of flocking together is amplified by the elder sheep when young ones are born. They already have a natural inclination toward flocking, but the elder sheep build it up and they push the younger ones into the herd to train them to stay with the herd. And they amplify and build up that instinct so that it is acted upon even more. So much so that they become utterly dependent on being part of the flock to know what to do. I was reading a story about a shepherdless flock over, I believe, in Russia. They had a leader. They had a sheep that was leading the flock. And this sheep decided to do something not very smart. It came across a massive trench that was like 15 meters deep or is 15 meters wide or something. It was just a deep, wide trench. And the sheep, instead of turning around and away from that trench, tried to leap over it and fell down into the trench. And then the rest of the flock did the same. They saw their leader jump and they thought, we must follow the leader for we are one flock. We all go together. We all stay together. And so that shepherdless flock fell into a great huge trench and many of them were injured because of that. Shepherdless sheep make bad decisions that will hurt the flock and sometimes even kill it. That's why it's so important when we hear those words, the Lord is my shepherd from Psalm 23. It's so nice and pastoral. It's so comforting to us to hear it. But consider what it means to say the Lord is my shepherd. To place those words upon your lips is to say that you have total trust in that shepherd. You have total trust in the leading and guiding of the Lord. You place yourself in His control. You place him, yourself under His authority. You're substituting your will for His and even putting down your own wants and desires for what His words demand. Sheep will follow the lead of anyone. And they need a shepherd. And we are the same way. We flock into our groups and then we need a leader, a guide, one that will show us the way. No matter how independent we think we are, we're all following someone. We're just imitating someone else in the things that we do. Think of the award show from this past week about the devilish and satanic looking concert that was put on on the stage. It was done up to look like hell with all the satanic imagery. All the people talk about how edgy this was. That is such an independent thing to do when really that's what the culture has been doing for 50 years. Think back to the old 80s bands, to the 70s. Many of those old bands had the same kind of imagery that had the same kind of supposed edginess of rejecting Christianity, of rejecting religion. It's not independent and edgy because it's already been done for generations. 
These performers were just per doing something that is old hat that's not original and is just following the wider culture, following others who have gone before them, doing exactly what they do. And all they do is mock religion and mock Christianity. They think they're doing their own thing and they're just doing what Satan wants them to do, but Satan has hidden himself. In their mockery, they think they make fun of Satan, but they're just going right along his path. They're following his directions without even realizing it. And so when we hear of sheep without a shepherd, it's sheep without a good shepherd. It's sheep without a shepherd who will protect them, who will lead them and guide them and shape them and keep them away from the bad things, keep them away from those spiritual forces that are against us and protect us as we are people. And yes, it means that we will follow someone. That means that we will not be independent. It means that our will will be substituted and replaced by the will of God. Our desires will be set aside for the sake of His Word, for the sake of His work in us, for the sake of His new life that He gives to us, such that our wills will be reshaped and made to reflect what He desires for us. That's what happens to these sheep without a good shepherd. Their wills and their desires are getting reshaped by the things that they do, by the influences that they bring in, by the shepherds that they are choosing to follow. None of us are without a shepherd. Without, But many of us are without a good shepherd. And so we look to this good shepherd who has compassion, who comes to those who are forlorn, who comes to those who are fatigued and worn out and broken down. He comes to those who need Him. And it is all of us who need Him. And as He looks out upon these people, He reminds His disciples to pray. He reflects on this great harvest before Him of all these people who need to hear about the kingdom, who need to be brought the gospel. And He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And not just the harvest, but into His harvest. Our first duty is always to pray as we go through this world. Paul will later say, pray without ceasing. Continually pray, bring thanksgiving, bring petitions, bring intercessions before the Father always. And in this case, Look around you and see that there is a great and glorious harvest before us of people who need to hear about Christ, of people who need to know about Jesus, of people who need us to come to their aid. But there are few laborers going out into that field right now. But there is a grand harvest. And so Jesus says, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, to then anoint and send out, to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is there, and Yahweh is going to accomplish a great harvest. And we look around and we ask, who, Lord, is going to go? Who are these laborers? Send them forward, Lord. Send them out. Accomplish your great promises, especially of what we heard over in Isaiah 49. It says, It is too light a thing that you, my servant, that you should simply be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you as a light unto the nations, 
that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. God's goal is not merely to save the Jewish people. His goal was not merely to save Jacob, merely to save Judah back in those ancient times. His goal was to shine a light into the whole world, to draw the nations unto himself, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And part of the way that he did that was when Judah became wicked and deplorable and idolaters, he broke Judah apart. He sent his people to the far corners of the earth. He brought great suffering into their lives to drive them out in order that they would rediscover his salvation anew. And that, and that rediscovery become witnesses and become a light and they come back into their land. And still they miss the point. Even when the Messiah shows up, that one who is the true light that they were ultimately directing everyone's eyes to. Many of them miss out on what he is doing. But his light goes across the whole earth to draw the nations to himself. And even in Psalm 67, we hear that too, that that is God's plan to bring the nations into his fold, to make them his own, that they would praise him, that they would fear him, that they would come to know him more and more and more, that they would be refreshed by him over and over. That is God's goal and his desire for his people is to make himself known and for us to pray earnestly for those laborers to come into the field. And if you continue on in chapter 10, you discover who some of those laborers are. It is the very people he told to be praying earnestly. That as they pray earnestly for there to be laborers to go into God's harvest, into Yahweh's harvest, he looks at those very disciples and says, now you go. I'm giving you the authority to cast out unclean spirits, to heal disease and affliction, to preach the kingdom, to teach the kingdom is coming, that the gospel is here and coming through the Messiah. And so when we pray earnestly for laborers to go out, don't be surprised if you become that laborer for God, that you have a harvest, you have a field that you go out into every day. Your vocations, your callings is where God has placed you. And he gives you that grace and that ability to make him known through your works, through your words, through your words explaining your works. But that doesn't take away our call to pray, to continually pray for those laborers. That even if we become special laborers who go to the ends of the earth as opposed to just the end of our street, we still pray. We still pray for those laborers to go out that God's will would be accomplished, that he would bring salvation that he would express his compassion through us to bring others into his kingdom, to bring them under his gracious fatherly reign. And we pray that we would not be curmudgeons like Uve, but that our hearts would be uncrusted completely and full of compassion and love from the beginning, that we would receive the salvation joyfully that God gives us and then carry that salvation to others as we go out into this field and seek out God's harvest and bring it into Him through prayer and through teaching, through making known the gospel of the kingdom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.